All right, everyone, welcome to Solve for Why vlogcast number five. Holy fuck, they let us do five of these already. And of course, it is myself, Christian Soto, Matt Berkey, the Dominican flag, the donkey, the shark is back, and no fucking guests. It is just me and Matt Berkey today. What is up, bro? How's it going, man? Berkey is back from a short stint in the Bay Area. Went to the headquarters of Google. Didn't do that. Went to the headquarters of Uber. Didn't do that. Went to the head. What are the headquarters over there? All of them, man. All the headquarters are over there? Yeah. So literally, I had this misconception. I thought Silicon Valley was like just outside of San Jose because all these years I've been going to Bay 101. Yeah. They talk about like how impossible it is to get like a hotel room and like housing because everybody's there for Silicon Valley. What I didn't realize is they're commuting to Silicon Valley, which is actually in San Francisco. Ah. I want to work there one day. We'll take this. And just <laughs> transport it over to Silicon Valley. I think so this would have to become tech. No, we're working on it. This shit's tech. There's microphones. There's, <laughs> there's cameras looking at us. There's all kinds of shit. Sure. I don't know how many Dominicans live over there. Anyway, let's talk about all these uh, coaching sites that are popping up. Now, I'm not going to take any shots on people. Mm. We're not going to take personal shots. I'm just going to – I just want to have a conversation of – what do you think a 2019 poker site has to include and like as it pertains to both the person running it as well as the content? So the way that I see it is... And if the shoe fits, then there you have it. The way I see it is that uh, it's becoming an increasingly crowded space and... I think the reason why we're seeing this influx of people creating entry points yeah. is because by and large, the sites that have been most successful thus far have kind of um, surpassed the entry level player. Okay. So particularly when you look at the gold standard, it's run at once. Yeah, yeah. we don't talk about other sites here. No, it's fine. All right, fine. Um, Shout out to run at once. They're very good. So like when you look at like run at once, uh, what you recognize is that they have really elite pros yeah. putting out really elite content mm -hmm. and that they are attempting to uh, corner a very niche market. Okay. Now, they were able to establish themselves in a time where there was almost no competition. And, and Galfon was considered like the number one yeah. teacher. Of, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a very good ambassador of the game. So uh, regardless of your level of expertise, you've probably had some experience with Run It Once. Right. So they were able to encapsulate an entire market through uh, a business metric that truly only targeted uh, a certain subset of pros. I think that there's gonna be a bit of a dilution process that takes place there. I would anticipate over the next 18 months to see a big shift from what it wants, whether that means creating uh, a more rigid split between their elite members and uh, essential. The, the essential or, yeah. or whatever they wanna relabel it, uh, whether it means bringing on like more stream team type people, which I know that they were working on that for a while. Right. Um, there's just going to have to be some evolution that takes place there because the marketplace is getting very crowded and very competitive. Mm -hmm. Polk kind of took the opposite approach. He put a lot of investment into YouTube where he would release a lot of very low hanging fruit for free. Yeah. So this was going to be very shallow strategy. Um, a lot of TMZ type content that was going to rile people's feathers. Right. It was a lot was gonna, of poker hands as yeah. well as like news. Yeah. That. It was going to drive views. It was going to 
force eyeballs onto his site and then funnel them to the upswing site when it's all said and done where he can sell premium courses made by elite players. Yeah. Again, pretty much targeting uh, elite clientele. Right. Right. Ben CB is another great example at Razor Edge. Really good product. Uh, does well for himself in the fact that it caters to very niche uh, audiences. But again, like there hasn't been any... Poker is such a difficult game with so many nuances that you have to have like some baseline level of poker intelligence before you can really begin to study. Correct. So that entire group that was trying to get to the level of being able to even get into these trading sites, ours included, right? Like we very much set out with the idea of trying to be a high-end site uh, with a high price point where we were going to challenge that $99 a month price point. Right. It had been in, in place since the dawn of Run It Once yeah. in 2010, 2012. Yeah. And, we rem- and I remember a lot of interviews with Galfon saying that he kind of regrets the $100 because right. he, he could have just went higher right. and people would have paid. Right. So for us, it was like our focus was going to be, uh, well, we specialize in live poker. Right. And that's very critical to distinguish between. And we're, we're actually seeing this being echoed in the, in the community a lot now. You hear a lot of this talk about clairvoyance. Yeah. And really all it is is a term for being able to qualify how live players are able to make such exploitative uh, adjustments in game. And effectively, it's just based on the idea that their opponents are playing so transparently, their strategy is so face up, that an obvious counter strategy becomes apparent to the better players. Correct. Um, so we leaned heavily into that and we wanted yeah. to create a high-end product that would uh, you know, kind of be able to coach people up to developing this level of clairvoyance while still instilling the principles of game theory uh, from the baseline. So everybody who's trying to get to that entry point, which now the barrier of entry was growing rapidly, had to seek someone else out. And for a long time, it was just the private sector, right? It was individual coaches. Well, I I think what happened is like, okay, so there, there definitely are what we would consider... I don't want to say second tier sites, but not in the run at once upswing camp. Right. Like there's Red Chip, Crush Live Poker, yeah. um, you know, that term of Poker Edge, whatever. All those that are not the, you know, the, the massive ones with the massive names. Right. But then people seem to like not like. They never evolve. Right. There, there's no evolution there. And like, you know, it is what it is, right? Like when you're talking about conscious poker. Uh, Crush Live, Red Chip, mm-hmm. um, Tournament Poker Edge, all these sites, they're probably very good at facilitating entry-level uh, sure. type of content. I don't know. I, I know I know what Red Chip does, and I think that they do a good job of that. Yeah. The problem is that the ceiling is very low, and so is the plateau. Yeah. And it's very difficult for people to understand when it's time to move on. And for a lot of people, uh, it perpetuates this infinite learning loop that we discuss so clearly, where the strategy is kind of meant to refeed itself, yeah. right? It just gets you to a certain point and then uh, poses more problems that send you all the way back to the beginning. Right, and I think, I think what, what we've come to discover is that it's not the answers, it's the questions, right? right? It's like you have to learn to ask better questions, mm-hmm. but not for answers for someone else, but for you to discover yourself. Right. Once you have a really intimate understanding of your strategy, and you test your strategy, you test your strategy with better questions of, mm-hmm. of, and then you answer them. Yeah. Right? 
Fully agree. Uh, and the, the issue is that most people just don't operate that way. Most people are looking for a cardboard cutout or an out-of-the-box strategy that they can implement. And, you know, because game theory does have such sound principles, there are some things that we can do that will make people instantly higher EV than they were. Well, of we, course. We can give them hand charts. We can give them push-up push-fold charts. We can get them better at reshoving. We can get them better at, uh, you know, understanding chip EV and, right. and, and things along those lines. But again, like the plateau is apparent and relatively low. So what's happening now is a lot of that private sector is recognizing that they can cast a wider net by making a video once mm. instead of hosting a coaching call Correct. 10 times a week. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we saw uh, Potential uh, recently launch a site or soft launch a site. Yeah. Uh, we saw uh, Jonathan Little just announced that he's going to be launching a site, um, which he's kind of had. Or a bigger, uh, a different yeah. sec, 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 sec. Yeah, uh, I'm not entirely sure what the business model is going to be, but from the best I can tell, he's just changing his business model, which makes sense because right. what he was doing in the past was just producing a massive amount of content and selling it relatively cheaply. So, you know, he's doing a great job of casting that wide net and appealing to the everyman, yeah. but it's costing him a ton of time. And uh, I imagine it has depreciating returns. Yeah. And, and I just want to make sure, like, you know, if you're watching this, like, we don't necessarily know exactly what these people are doing. This, this is just what we are, uh, what we see. So I'm if, speaking strictly from a business sense. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm not even commenting on the content. Right. Like, uh, it is what it is. I think. Uh, I'm just saying if we are wrong as it pertains to what they're trying to do business wise, sure. yeah, like yeah. it's just our perception of it. It's not that we actually know. Right. So I'm yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. I'm sure like we'll get like some corrections and, I'm, that's, and that's fine. That's okay. fair. Um, but yeah, I would imagine that there's depreciating returns because what's happening is that these other big sites that are accredited will begin to capture that audience as well, even if they're not ready for it, mm. right? And now all of a sudden, uh, if when you're entering the game, you're not entering the proper channels of a Redshift or a Crush Live, uh, a Jonathan Little, whatever the case may be, and you're just jumping the shark and, and heading right into uh, deeper waters, it harms them because they're selling at a very low cost already and uh, it kind of creates this great divide in the, training, in the training world, right? So I think what we're gonna see is a continued growth with an attempt to capture the everyman, with an attempt to improve Rex, mm -hmm. uh, with an attempt to um, sell the dream. Yeah. And my best estimate is that the market just won't support it. It's difficult to pull money from losing players because they're losing it at the tables already, mm -hmm. right? So like they're already restricted on their bankroll due to the simple fact that they're seeing negative returns when they play. And it becomes difficult, especially if it's a hobbyist, for them to commit any sort of money, which also on the back end is gonna require time and effort. Yeah. Uh, so it does create a, a scenario where it's not like the gym you know, where you just pay a $25 a month membership, never go and say like, I'll get them next New Year's Eve. So, you know, a lot of people knew I, I worked with Redshift for a long time and like I still have associations with them. So it, what we found is a lot of the people that are looking for coaching are like middle-aged. And we had this conversation before uh, with Nick Howard as well. Like it's mostly middle-aged men that have some disposable Liquid. income. Yeah. So if that's the market, what do we think? It, like, do we think that these people are just not going to continue buying? Like, is that, is that what you're saying? Because they, no, 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 no. What I'm saying is that uh, that market is dying. I see. 
So I think that it's less likely that people who are in their late 20s and 30s now will discover poker whenever they hit that 40-year-old mark and they have disposable income, et cetera, et cetera, right? So in, in some capacity, we have to cultivate future generations, mm. right? And so like the most likely people to fit that narrative now are either aspiring pros or like slightly losing pros or like top either minus 10% plus 10%. Right. Or well-to-do amateurs who are finding young success, right? They're in their twenties or thirties and they're in tech and whatever the case may be. Uh, it's just very difficult to find the person who's losing at one, two and two, five that's working a nine to five, uh, barely grinding out a living that's going to put up absorbent cost. And, Obviously, that applies to us. We're super expensive for that for that subset, right? Yeah. But it it also applies for the people charging like forty dollars a month. Mm. You know, five hundred dollars when it's all said and done becomes a lot of money to somebody who is perpetually losing eighty to two hundred dollars every time they sit down. And you know, that's not to say that some help wouldn't be better than no help, but it is to say that if for four hundred fifty dollars a year you can cut your losses by 10%, uh, that becomes a, di a more difficult spend than if for say $2,500 a year, you could become break even. And I'm not drawing a direct parallel there because generally speaking, you do have to put one foot in front of the other. Yeah. You kind of have to go the introductory path before you get to the, to the slightly more advanced path. But the thing is there's so much good free material out there now that it's gonna kind of force this, this cheaper path to get swallowed up. Like we're gonna release a free content tier, right? Right. Run it once. I'm certain is gonna do the same. Right. Uh, Doug was already doing a lot of it. We saw um, th there's a bunch of other YouTube channels cropping up. The vlogger Sphere is is right. getting really really popular. Um, you know, it's gonna be an arms race for who can put out the best free content without cutting off their nose despite their face. Right. Who can pour the most resources into their free content? and still turn a profit on the back end. Yeah. And if you're only charging $25 a month for your product Seems or right. you're only charging, you know, $30 for a webinar or whatever, it's diminishing returns. Like you just can't possibly put money into the marketing side of things. Yeah. Seems very difficult. I, I, unless there's a, an additional funnel where it's like, maybe they get some coaching private and, and stuff like that. Sure. Well, I think ultimately that maybe what we see is a solution. The sites that have longevity and emerge as being high quality that are truly providing a value to the community members that they are targeting um, will ultimately be the ones who have the most resources available. And the smaller sites that are attempting to target the everyman can kind of be that tier for the, for the larger sites, right? To me, it makes sense that coordination begins to take place at the training level, right? Like-minded people, uh, coexist with other like-minded people and uh, just create other layers and tiers. Yeah, I'm, I'm really company. surprised that the only acquisition that ever happened in these training sites was uh, Lego to Ivy Poker. That was the only acquisition ever. It's, it's ego, man. We all want to believe that we're doing something differently. We all want to, we all, we, we come from building our own business or our own brand in poker, right? Yeah. Like we started from nothing. We started from some sort of bankroll. We found success and we became our own personal business who answered to nobody, right? So it's like, of course, if we're gonna take on another venture and start something from scratch, that's our baby. 
and we want to birth it. You know, we, we don't want to like get it to a certain point and then say like, okay, this I'm in over my head, but I still have value to offer. Who can I work for? Right. right? That, that's a very difficult thing to understand. Um, but I do think that like, ultimately speaking, there probably isn't enough water in the pool for everybody to swim. And eventually somebody's going to have to be forced out. Sorry, Alan. Yeah, agreed. So this week was the tag team event. And I thought it was a great success. Uh, obviously, you were busy with your speech, but I crushed it, man. I don't know what you're talking about. I played the blinds and I broke even. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I thought I think the tag team event is one of the best events of the series. And I tweeted out a photo of a couple that was there, and they were such a pleasant couple to play with. And I see a lot of just like overall happiness as it pertains to the tag team event like i, I think, couldn't believe the sight i saw when i got there what the rail was like yeah. seven deep yeah man the whole way through the pavilion man yeah people were like having beers on the rail just like it looked like they were they were uh a part of like some sort of sporting event where they were you know tailgating and just like waiting their turn so the table draw that we took that we had was matt hutt sat marley sat as well and Marley and Hunt, effectively, when they sit down, they, they draw the same table as Randall Emmett. Here's the thing, in the 5K, and then we're recording, right? Yes. In the 5K, it was 10-handed, I was at war, poker after dark, at war. What do you do with your enemies? You make them teammates. That's what poker's about. You know, it, it's a really fun atmosphere. But effectively, what I'm trying to say is, I think the tag team at the 1K price point is nice. I know I saw some poker players saying like, oh, maybe we could bring up the price point. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a fun event at $1,000. A lot of people can play. A lot of amateurs can play with their significant other. I think once you make it like a 10K buy-in, things become like- They tried a, that. It a was, real, yeah, that's, yeah, why, that's why I bring it up. Yeah. Like it, it's like too, it's too much now. Like yeah. I think that the 1K, buy, 1K price point, obviously for a professional, you make less money now because if like if we're a four-way team, sure. Now all of a sudden, if we win, we're not get, we're not getting that much. I, just, I I guess so. I don't think much needs to be changed. I think it was a fantastic event. The little bit that I saw, yeah. Um, and I really like the idea that there's no breaks. Yeah. Uh, you know, you kind of Iron Man this thing. We, we can added get it over. They added that this year. Yeah, we yeah. can kind of get it over with quicker. I think that's all amazing. Uh, I do wonder how we can attract more people. Because I don't think this needs to be an event where 150,000 goes to first. We see 1Ks all the time reach 500K to first. Well, the thing is that you're cutting the, the pool. Because now sure. there's three people per team, two to four people per team. Now those people can't end Right, so that, that's kind of what I'm posing is instead of it being a $250 event for a four-man team, mm -hmm. uh, is there a way that we could, you know, make it a 2,500 total? That's what some people were saying. Yeah, I don't like, think we need to get bigger. to like a 5K or a 10K. Yeah. But I think we need to get like... If we can get it to a point where like, there's a little more skin in the game per person, I don't think we're going to crop the field that much. Right? 500 a person. Yeah, if it's 500 a person. Uh, so, yeah, like a 2K. I think a 2K would be great. Yeah. And I think we get the exact same turnout. It's 300, that's 300K now. Yeah. And I think 300K to first is like, okay, this is like... This is real. This is a, an event we should be proud of when we win. Not saying that you shouldn't be at 150 as well, but like, you know, it's, it is a great event. It would be nice to make it a staple marquee type of event. And if for no other reason, just simply due to how many 
amazing references to wrestling we can make. Oh my God. The memes, man, they're endless. Like, Stop. if you can insert The Rock and Stone Cold over and over for three straight days, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. That's, that's, that's what you guys like. Um, I think it's a great event simply because there are people that are in this event that very likely could not play the event if they had to do it themselves. Sure. So, you know, they're taking turns, they're getting breaks. Like, so there's a lot of like handicapped people that yep. are playing now, you know, families that like aren't necessarily like no, none of these people are going to put up like, you know, an entire buy-in and, and things like that. But if they're playing with their family, if they're playing with their friends, they have a support group. It's a, it's a lower uh, cost point. They get to say that they played a tournament mm-hmm. at the World Series. You know, I think that's really good, especially for like the growth of the game and things like that. Uh, they get to say they played with Matt Berkey for three hands. Sure. sure. Um, I really enjoy it. I, I, I had so much fun because there's a little bit of extra strategy in it. Um, so, for example, our team functioned where if we get under 30 big blinds, we just snap bring in Matt Hunt. Yeah. You know, and that's like, that's fun. Because yeah. it's like, all right, we have this sniper guy. Yeah. That is yeah. just his entire job is if we get under 30 blinds, he just snap goes in. Right. And it's like, that's fun because it, it brings up this element of strategy. And I thought it was, I thought it was funny. Um, okay. Then the other marquee was the monster stack. Yep. What are your thoughts as it pertains to the longevity of this tournament? So it's a six day event. It's really, yeah. It ended up playing out six. I think it's a tough, it's a tough event for, for a recreational win. There's still the complaint of like this massive long days before you get into the money. When did they, when did they make the money? So I cashed that event and we made the money, I believe late day two. And how was, how was the numbers for the field? So First place was a million, right? 906 cash. I mean, it sounds, sounds pretty great. Um, yeah. People I'm really love it. people love the I'm the, unsure what makes that structure so much longer than like the big 50. They were literally the exact same with the exception of the big 50 plays an extra what four levels on day 1 and the big 50 skipped uh the oh, couple yeah. levels yeah, like we talked the, about the 500 that. big line etc. Yeah. Um people love this tournament. People love the monster stack. I think they love it a lot more than the marathon. Yeah, um, for sure. People love the monster stack. I cashed the monster stack with 1.5 big blinds. Yeah, you had a real hero's journey. Let's talk about this hand. We were roughly three or four off the money mm-hmm. at the time. Action folds around to me. We're playing five, five K, ten K. Villain in the big blind has four hundred and seventy K. Yep. I have five hundred and ten K, something like that. Folds around to us. I have jacks. Okay. It seems as if with comparable stacks here, I definitely want to develop a limp range. So that's why I, I chose to limp. Okay. Villain now raises to 4x, and now the action's on us. Okay. So this is a weird spot because the bubble and, yeah. and just the dynamic of the bubble. We could limp 3-bet. Effectively, so what I chose to do here is, is I chose to limp shove. Okay. And the reason I chose to do that was because I thought it would put a lot of his Broadway region in a really tough spot, even hands like Ace-King. Yeah. Because if you're calling off Ace-King here, on the stone bubble, like you're going to bust this tournament off 47 blinds. And I think that's a, probably a mistake. Sure. Right? Uh, his ace king, king queens, ace queen. The problem queen is, is that I think he, he begins to fold tens, nines, and eights properly. Okay. Uh, and obviously never folds queens, kings, and aces. Correct. And that's, oh, sure. that's all a big problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's way more of a case 
four just limp three betting to like 14 or 15 blinds and then call and calling off yeah uh, i agree with that i think i, think I would strongly just prefer to raise call a three bet raise call yeah so i think i would just strongly prefer to like have a pretty pulled opening range here yeah and raise to like three x yeah and then just call when he makes it 10 yeah and play accordingly post um you're not really incentivized to be playing an all-in pot here yeah of course of course um I, I guess like you know having conversations with with Hunt and and things like that, he 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 liked the play simply because and you know he's like our ICM guy, yeah. so he's yeah. effectively saying, you know we don't want to play a pot out of position that's inflated on the bubble, and if we can ever get our our opponent to fold, you know, ace king ace queen that's a huge but win. I don't think they are I think, don't think he's folding ace king no and that that's All that's right, kind that's of a my big problem. Well, that's kind of my biggest point is that I think that, like, though we recognize it's an ICM error, I don't think people are just, like, succumbing to it. Yeah. Right? Okay. Like, they just make the mistake. And unlike other mistakes in poker where, like, if he raise calls off with ace-10, ICM or not, right. we're making money from that mistake. Yeah. In this instance, everybody else is just making money from his mistake. Correct. Correct. You're not reaping any benefits. You're, you're, los- you're also losing money. Yeah. Right. Through his mistake. Yes. So I think that becomes a huge issue and we should just lean a lot more on figuring out how to maximize against hands that we have dominated. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. So I end up shoving. He has Kings and now I have four blinds Mm. as that hand is going. They're dealing out racks on my table. Oh God. Right. Yeah. Give me my seat. All the, everything stopped. Right. Yep. I go to my next table, yeah. big blind. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm just like, <sighs> really I'm testing s- you. I'm fucking steaming, like <laughs> I'm fucking steaming, man. I just got cooled off. He could have just had ace king, maybe ace queen, maybe I just double up, have a yeah. hundred bigs. Yeah. No, he has kings. I have four blinds now. Penalty. Yeah. Like the. Yeah, you don't get boom, the cut. Boom. No. Well, I have to pay the big blind, Annie. Right. Whatever. Couple hands passed, maybe like four or five hands. What was your big blind hand? Did it matter? I'm folding. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like, yeah. and, and it went like raise call, and I just like mucked my hand. Like, yeah. I can't, whatever. I don't think you can fold like aces in that spot. No, I won't or, fold or aces. Or even like kings. No, not even queens. Maybe, I, it, maybe it, queens is a fold. I don't know. It's pretty debatable. But I like mean, kings like you, and aces, I'm you, definitely. You, in a field that large, you're likely to cash. No. I, by just folding through the blinds. I, I folded through the blind. I didn't have any good hands anyway. Yeah, yeah. But I make the money. With now 1.5 blinds, and some guy raises, and I have pocket eights. So I put it in, and the guy in the big blind calls, and the flop comes like jack four three with two hearts, X queen. And then went bet call on the flop. I, I'm dead. I'm like, okay, I went bet call. I'm so dead. Yeah. River. I mean, turn is like a break. It goes check, check, river, queen of hearts, bringing, bringing the flush, check, bet, and then this guy folds. Mm-hmm. And then this guy has ace, 10, black. Wow. And he got the guy with the jack to fold. <laughs> and I win. And now sure. I have five blinds. Okay. And I'm like, okay, I got life. Yeah. Then I get kings. Yeah. And I double again. Yeah. And I'm like, holy fuck. Yeah, like, we rolling. Right? So then I, I grind all the way back to like 20 blinds somehow. And then the guy with like, you know, 12 blinds raises and I got kings and I rate and I'm all in and he has aces. 
And I'm just <laughs> like, yo, this is an, this is annoying and it hurts. Yeah. Like I end up just like grinding out, like, you know, from 900th place where I could have bubbled all the way up to like 500th place right. with a shot, Yeah. which is nice. And you know, whatever, it was pretty painful just because I was playing really well and it's kind of sucks. Like when things get taken away from you, like, it's good for the entitlement, though. Yeah. It's good for the soul, you know? Like, you, you kind of check it all at the door, and you say, like, I have no control in this scenario. I'm just going to cash with my 1.5 blinds, and whatever happens from that point forward happens. Yeah, except when you get back up to 20, you feel like you yeah, deserve it. Yeah, the entitlement it. reinserts. Yeah, you feel like you deserve it again. Yeah. You're like, you know, I'm the fucking best, man. <laughs> I had 1.5 blinds, and I found a way to spin it all the way back up here, and I've defended my blinds, and I've been check-raising, and I'm, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, so that's good. Colossus looks amazing again. 6,000 people today. Yeah. This, this flight is, at least this version of Colossus, is mm -hmm. much different yeah. in that it's not unlimited uh, bullets, and you only get two bullets per Half flight. flights. And it's also $400. Yep. Interesting as it pertains to the argument of limiting re-entries i personally have come all the way to the other side of there's definitely the best course of action as it pertains to giving recreationals a shot and giving the pros a little bit of what they want is to limit re-entries to two yeah i think that's the way to do it yep the venetian running these unlimited re-entries i'm looking at you know hunt and i made, made a joke like we're like look at this final table man like the 1600 final table was like all pros. Yeah. Like not one wreck. It's like, it's tough, man. When, when registration ends and all the pros are still in, it makes it really hard. Yeah. Like yeah. I think when you limit things to two and you know, obviously you're going to have more recreationals deep in the tournament sure. because, and less, less pros. So I really like it. Yeah. I think it's a no brainer. I think that uh, it's very telling when the guy who created reentry tournament, Savage, Matt Savage, is on record as saying like it's one of his worst monsters. We want the inflated prize pools. Uh, I like the idea of there being some reentry. Yeah. Uh, I don't mind it if it's like even special events where it's like you just know that they're going to be reentry. Yeah. You know, especially at the World Series, things should be much more of a freeze out manner. And if places like the Venetian and Win want to run reentry unlimited, like let them. There's a market for it. People will play. But, you know, just recognize that when the money matters, the field's going to be a lot tougher. And I think you see that this year. The World Series is just booming with recreational players, and the Venetian is just riddled with pros. Yeah. And that's, that's fine. Like, there's no issues with either one of those things. Um, for the longevity of the ecosystem and, and its, its health, its overall health, I think that we need to do something in some capacity where we restrict this somewhat. I don't care about who has the chance to win. I don't care about who wins. Um, but I do care about the idea of effectively making it an unfair playing field. It's just difficult, particularly if you're talking about like World Series events where there's a big mix of high-level pros and amateurs. It's tough if you knock Bonomo out of an event and then you see him two tables over five minutes later. Yeah. Like that's, that's frustrating. And it makes you feel like, it makes it, it makes it very apparent that as a lesser player, you don't have a shot. You know, and I, I think we should just do things that discourage that type of cannibalism. Well, the original, the original argument, and I remember this maybe like three years ago, 
was if we travel all the way here, mm -hmm. I want to be able to play. Um, and I don't want it to be a freeze out and things like that. So is that argument you still still alive? So, for example, if we go to Florida right now yep. and they make that a freeze out, would that discourage us from even going? Well, so I think what's changed in recent years is people are becoming a lot more accepting of fast structure. Mm. So I think what you can just offer instead is really strong preliminary schedules. And also what or a lot of places, yeah, what a lot of places are doing is, is really good post limbs. So for instance, Florida has the big four and it's fantastic. They stagger four very major events off of one another, where if you're not making day two and day three of a particular event, then you have another big prize pool to play for. They have a 5k, a I believe it's a 1k, 25, 5k, 25k. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's great. They, they appeal to the masses. They also appeal to the high roller circuit. Uh, I, I believe the bigger buy-ins um, have more re-entry. Yeah. Uh, I'm not certain. They might just be heavy re-entry across the board. But either way, uh, they're offering a lot of options. And I think that that is particularly the way that people need to view this scope. I remember the Borgata used to have an incredible schedule, like a can't-miss schedule. I would go for 20 days at a time. But as I reached a certain level where it's like, it's just not worth my time or energy to be in New Jersey playing a 500, 250K guarantee. Shout out to New Jersey, you heard? Good. Um, and that's not to say there isn't value for those types of events, but I think that like you're best served in stacking, right? So start your series early with big guarantees, small buy-ins, multi-flight days, right. yada, yada, yada. I think a lot of, a lot of uh, places have done that now for sure. Like Agreed. LAPC, Borgata, yeah. they all do that. Yeah, and then build up to events that will uh, have some allure to everybody. Yeah. You know, have a 1600 before a main, have a, have a 2k, whatever the case may be. Um, but I also think that the other way to go about this is to not allow re-entries, uh, same day. So run multiple flights. Okay. I think multi-flight events for these ones that you travel to are critical. Um, because first of all, if you're an active pro, it's nice to be able to turn trips into, uh, uh, kind of a work vacation type environment. I see. Yeah. So you earn days off. Right. And that's huge. Yeah, we right? do that. We, do, we definitely enjoy that in Florida the most because it's like right. if you bag day one, you might have two days off. Yeah. And then come back. Now you get to enjoy those two days off in whatever city you're in. Yeah. And I know that like you can make an argument that like time is money and this is an expensive trip and, you know, stretching out the, the event is, is difficult. But it's like, People want, the, people want the big prize pools. People mm -hmm. are going to travel for big prize pools. And the way to get big prize pools is to give everybody multiple opportunities to get in. And even for me, I remember when, like, when I used to just have like one bullet, I would just go the last day. Yeah. Like, it's right. like if you only have one bullet, now you get to just go the last day. The flight's going to be massive. You mm -hmm. already know that guarantee is going to get smashed. And it's like, yeah, like if you don't want to be there that long, just go the last day. Yeah. Like I used to do that at Brigada. And yeah, totally agree. So one of the one of the things that's like kind of like rumoring around is that we are in the midst of a second poker boom. Do you think that's true? The numbers don't lie. No. The tournament numbers are insane. Boom is uh boom, boom is ambitious. Boom is of uh a made up term in this instance. Okay. We're we're just we're never going to see peak poker again. So like to call something a secondary boom is like crazy. Yes, we are trending upward. And I think that that's a byproduct of a million different things. Price points changing, Bitcoin rising, 
you know, the, the economy being in a better place than it was in years past, online being regulated in certain areas. There are a number of factors that can create more liquidity in the pool. But I don't think we're seeing massive growth when it comes to uh, new players entering the ecosystem. I don't see that, or I don't believe that we're seeing, um, on average, more players win. Uh, I think quite the opposite is happening. I think there's a, a, a great divide and a big disparity between winning players and losing players, bigger than we've ever seen in the past. Uh, I think we're shifting much more towards an incredibly fierce competitive capitalistic market where eventually we're only going to see one to 10% of people winning and the other 90% are going to fuel those winners. I still think there's a lot of room for change. You I think, sound optimistic, man. I, I, I honestly, I am. I think poker's healthier than it's ever been. I think it's more stable than it's ever been during the boom. Let's be very clear. There was no stability, right? Right. It could have collapsed at any point in time. It was a bubble and online and black Friday just burst that bubble in some capacity. Fortunately enough, it had been around long enough right. where it reached some label or level of stability. Right, if Black Friday would have happened two, three years before, maybe it just ends. Certainly right. if it happened like five or six years before, right? right? Um, you know, so there were a lot of other things that allowed poker to perpetuate moving forward that were very lucrative. Mm -hmm. And enough people had been doing it for a living long enough at that point where they didn't have other options and they didn't have other places to turn. So they either moved or they shifted live or whatever the case may be. It was a self-sustaining industry at that point. But that bubble could have collapsed in on itself if it happened year one, year three, even year five of the online poker boom. You know, I think now we have a lot of stability, but we're doing too many things that are uh, cannibalistic in nature. I think that, you know, we've talked a lot about this where I think one, two is unsustainable even for the biggest winners in the game. Yeah. Uh, and that's a byproduct of the casino not understanding where their future customers are coming from. Right. Not right. recognizing that they should be running 50 cent a dollar rake free or very, very, very low rake right. and, uh, you know, reducing the rake at one, two. And I understand, you know, these table spaces are worth money to them and, you know, all this other stuff and poker rooms are already taking a net loss and, right. and things like that. But well, there really shouldn't be. I, I guess this is a, uh, my viewpoint is that I don't think there should be one, two pros at the casino. So it's funny you say that. I, I was I was just thinking of how this could be monitored. And I think it, it would require a lot of organization and uh, some level of scrutiny i guess but if there was a way where we could create stakes both online and live uh at the one two level and below where if you play for a living you're you're not allowed to play i think that we could potentially see uh, a level of health and growth in the game that we've never seen in the past even during the boom time you're right? saying let's say it's like 50 a dollar but if yeah. you play for a living you can't play right so but how would you monitor you can't so it would have to be similar to golf where uh, if you've if you like claim on your taxes, right. you're a professional gambler. If you log X amount of hours a year, uh, you know effectively the the way to do it would be incentivize people to get their pro card. So effectively, like if there were a bunch of lucrative tournaments throughout the year where you needed a pro card to enter, yeah, um, or you saved money on the event, it was yeah. rake free to you if you had a pro card. I see, right. 
uh, if in order to play 510 and get reduced rake, uh, you, you know, a lot of things. Yeah, obviously, yeah. you don't want to push amateurs. You out get of like, more comps or some shit like that with a yeah, pro card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. anything. Yeah, more kickback to the, that. That would be the way to do it, right? Uh, it would be to take a slightly higher rake and bigger stakes, but also provide a bigger kickback to people who held a pro card, whatever the case may be. Um, and you know, you're only restricting them from the lowest levels, right? They're, so they might not even care, right? That, that's the thing. It wouldn't disincentivize anybody from getting a pro card who is who is making a reasonable living. What it would disincentivize is the fringe players. And yeah, there would be some like quote unquote professionals who were made aware of the fact that they weren't making it because they're choosing an amateur ranking uh, in order to play smaller stakes over taking their pro card and, and playing yeah. a little bit higher. But yeah, if we could find some level of this organization um, where we have this, this pool that allows us to you know, effectively cultivate the bottom of the ecosystem and make it very healthy where it's just a pond full of minnows. Yeah. And there is no bigger fish coming in to, to feast. Mm -hmm. People will flourish. Yeah. Right. And, and the important thing obviously is that it doesn't become a thing where only the rake wins. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because if you put nine people down with the exact same skill set at the low levels where nobody's really winning and uh, just rake a buy-in off the table every hour, of course, they're all just going to go broke. Yeah. But it also gives people something to aspire to. You know what I mean? They're going to want to graduate out of 50 cent a dollar, out of one, two, and they're going to want their pro card. Yeah. yeah. They're going to want these incentives. They're going to want to be able to sit uh, and, and get their rake back. And, and online is the easiest place to facilitate this, um, especially in regulated markets like Nevada, where. And Jersey. How about Jersey? Yeah, where uh, you have to be fully transparent, right? So, name, birth certificate. Uh, yeah. Social Security card, or not birth certificate, but name, uh, do, photo, I, photo ID, Social Security card. Uh, you're you're dealing with W2Gs whenever mm -hmm. you're winning tournaments and all this other stuff. I, I just really think that it greatly increases the health of the community as a whole. Uh, maybe maybe it can happen. Maybe we could find a way to uh, to do it. I think it has to happen in a regulated online market first. I think that that's where it's most incentivized to happen. I think that that's where they have the easiest control. They they right. could see. Who's logging in? How many hours? Like they, they, and they, they also have room to offer the most incentives, mm -hmm. right? Because uh, they don't deal with the overhead that a brick and mortar casino does. And most of their budget is probably going to marketing. Right. So this can just be a different form of marketing. It, maybe that's what it is too. Like if you travel the circuit, you get a, you know, you, you're, you get that pro card. If you play a certain amount of buy-ins, whatever, we'll definitely figure it out. Yeah. I, I think that there's a way to do it. Next thing on the docket, your speech. You went to San Francisco. We spoke about this a little earlier in the, in the podcast. You went to San Francisco, spoke to some investors about Solve for Why. No. Damn it, man. What the fuck were you doing? <laughs> I, uh, I was asked um, very graciously to give a presentation at uh, San Francisco's second annual uh, recovery center. So effectively, it's a government-funded program or organization uh, where they're trying to clean up the opioid addiction problem in San Francisco. Mm. Uh, corollary to that is uh, there's a massive homelessness problem. Obviously, they, they kind of parallel and go hand in hand with one another. So they're working diligently to uh, get addicts off the street, basically. Really amazing collection of people. Uh, so proud of the fact that like they reached out to me. It was really random how it happened. Just uh, one of the directors happens to be a fan of poker and somebody sent him my 
my Huffington Post article. Well, I mean, I guess my blog post article, the one about my mother when she passed. And he told me today, like he read it and it moved him. And then like, he saw that I wrote it and he was like, I know that guy, like right, no right. way this is who wrote this. Like he's a poker player. Yeah. And they like dove a little bit more into it and was just like, you know, had to reach out. And I was shook, man. Like I want to do a lot more public speaking. I really enjoy it whenever it all comes together. And like what I know about myself is like I'll struggle to fail at this kind of stuff because I did live it. Right. And that alone will allow me to get to a level where it'll be good enough. Yeah. But I didn't want it to be adequate. Right. I wanted to, I wanted to shine in this situation. I want this to be something that I can lean on and say like, this is an asset. This is something I'm good at. But most importantly, like I wanted to contribute value Correct. for these people who like reached out and asked me graciously to be the, the guy. Yeah. Um, and so like, you know, I landed and I, I was stressing. We went to dinner with Hish, a uh, former Academy student, you know, great guy. He wants to have a good time. He wants us to hang out till dawn. Right, right. So I finally like parted ways with him at like 10 o'clock and I was just beat, just exhausted. And then suddenly like it's morning and I feel super rested and there's a certain calm about me. I'm just like, okay, like, you know, I think I'm going to be ready. And then it dawns on me. Hey, you should be really tired. It's 6.45 in the morning and the alarm didn't go off. Oh shit. It's not 6.45 in the morning. Oh my God. What happened was my phone updated its software in the middle of the night, which automatically <laughs> shuts it off. This is crazy. So now I'm panicked and I, sh I turn my phone on and it takes like five minutes to load mm. because it's going through the, the final stages of the, the update and my phone pops up 8.45. I'm like, could have been worse, I guess. Yeah. Okay, rush, take the fastest shower of my life, hurry up, throw some clothes on, call an Uber, I'm out the door by 9.05. I text Steve, the, the head guy, and I was like, look, I'm going to be a little bit late, but I don't go on until 10.10, so we'll still have time. Basically, we just uh, they wanted to go over some last-minute things. So now I'm showing up at 10.10 when I'm supposed to be going on, and they're so calm about it. They're like, don't even worry about it, man. There are 300 people here just waiting for you. We'll, get, we'll, we'll extend breakfast. Just don't sweat it. Get here as soon as you can. Yeah, you're like Kanye West. And I show up literally at 10:10 as they're introducing me. Uh, and what I did what I wasn't aware of until day of was that they played episode 4 of Dead Money. Oh wow. As an intro to me. All right. So I didn't expect to go off script so quickly, but uh, my video kind of stole my own thunder here. The entire intro is just shot. <laughs> um Episode four was my whole fucking speech. That's funny. Start to finish. Like the same intro story was the intro to episode four of Dead Money. It literally was like, I'm 14 years old, laying in bed. My <laughs> landlady knocks on the door. My mother's in yeah, jail. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, that's my intro. That's funny. Fuck. Like, do you feel as if like you contributed something? Yeah. I, I mean, I can't really explain the environment. Like you just have to be in it. It's just... I know you felt like as if you would have been out of place. Like, you know, last podcast we spoke about, you said like, like, oh, like, yeah, I no. feel like, you know... All, all of my fears were unfounded. Like, this was the warmest environment I think I could ever imagine speaking to. So please join me in welcoming a very special guest from Las Vegas, Nevada, Matt Berkey.
hear that deep pounding on the door at 2 a.m., most would be startled. Anytime that you're dealing with somebody who is an addict to the point where they can't really even help themselves any longer, you just wonder when the dam is going to break. My nightly prayers were, please let me make it as a professional baseball player. And please let my mother figure her way out of this awful path that she's fallen down. I had just like come to accept that at some point in time, I was going to get that call. Friday evening in 2015, I couldn't sleep. I was physically and mentally exhausted from the long hours of play during the World Series of Poker. Yet I couldn't quite quiet my thoughts. And I don't struggle to sleep. I'm the kind of person who when my head hits the pillow, I'm out like a light. For some reason, my mother was on my mind in a way that I hadn't felt since I was a kid. I questioned why it was so easy for me to treat her like a burden and why I hadn't made more of an effort to extend a helping hand in a meaningful way, not just financially. Having come from nothing, I have no tolerance for an apathetic crowd who turn a blind eye to the poor souls who have been beaten to their knees by life. Yet, there I laid. It was an internal struggle that finally allowed me to acknowledge that I had finally forgiven her. That through it all, I was a better man for having been raised by a woman who did everything wrong but truly ached to make it all right. I closed my eyes with, the promise, with a promise to myself that next time she called, I would answer. Unfortunately, the next afternoon, I found out my mother passed away that night in her sleep. Thank you. It was intimidating at first, but like the second that I got that warm reception to, to this show that we made, where like I haven't even said a word yet, it was just like, okay, like I'm in a safe place. And I got into it, man, and it was, it was awesome. Like usually you're not gonna get feedback from an audience. That's, yeah. that's just not how it works, especially with hundreds in the crowd. But like, this was like being at a Baptist church giving a sermon in some capacity. You know, there's like, <laughs> there, there are these, these women that were like in the first few rows and I was just like engaging with them the whole time where they're just like, mm-hmm, that's right, that's right. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, I made my point. Awesome. Like, I can transition off of this now. Yeah. Uh, so if you want speech coaching. No, 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 no. What? Well, we ain't there yet. Okay. If you want speech coaching, Scott, talk to Scott DeMullen. That's If you that's want our improv guy. coaching, <laughs> you want to get in there, you want to just show up, they play a movie about you, and then you just show up, cut the fat, and just go? Software Academy, 2000. 20. Have you ever seen Basketball Diaries? No. Leonardo DiCaprio? No. So this is his breakout role. Um, I thought his breakout role was Titanic. God, no. This was a decade prior. Are you sure his breakout role was not Titanic? He was 15. It was, it was uh, Basketball Diaries and, and What's Eating Gilbert Grape. He there's was a child, no, he was a child no actor. There's no way. That, Titanic. No, Titanic is maybe the best-selling movie that he's ever done. But he became a star at 15 in Basketball Diaries and What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Yeah, comment section if you think it's Titanic. <laughs> comment section if you think it's Basketball Diaries. This guy's never picked up a basketball in his life. All right, so Basketball Diaries, it has nothing to do with basketball. Uh, the whole reason I'm bringing this up is there's a scene where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio goes to his mother's house and he's just banging on the door 
begging for money, begging for forgiveness, like basically going through all the emotions that an addict goes through, yeah. where it starts with like, hey, mom, mom, hi, it's me. Uh, I, I need this. I need this. Right. And, you know, she's trying to be this strong willed mother who basically says, like, uh, look, I, I'm, I'm here to provide you anything that you need to get help, but I'm not going to further facilitate your habit. Right. right. So she closes the door on him, doesn't give him any money. He starts like enraged now, pounding the door like, what are you doing to me? Like, you know, you have no idea what you're doing. Like, and then he breaks down into tears. He's like, I'll be a good boy. I'll do anything. Like, and it goes through this roller coaster, right? And it's a really, really powerful scene. But for people who have no contact with addiction, yeah. they don't understand how true and, you know, non-dramatic that scene actually is. Like, I remember plenty of times where my mother went through the same thing with my grandparents, mm. like all the way from the sweetest woman in the world, just asking for a favor to, you know, punching my granddad in his face and uh, just being enraged yeah. at the fact that he wouldn't give in, you know, all the way to stealing and, and, you know, because they, I mean, I don't know as much as, as you probably, but I, I assume the emotion is, they believe they're going to get what they want. Mm -hmm. Then like the, the realization of they're not going to get what they want now means that they're missing out on what they think they need, yeah. which gets them more mad. Yeah. So effectively there, there are two things happening here at play. Uh, one is that um, when you're not in your proper state of mind and you're in this desperate desperation of survival, you know, scoring is a part of survival to these addicts, right? When you're in that full blown survival mode, nothing else matters. And what you have to prey upon, what the lowest hanging fruit is, is preying upon love, yeah. right? People who have love and compassion for you. Now, the irony is, and this is mostly what the backbone of my talk was about, is that uh, largely addiction isn't some chemical hook where you physically become uh, dependent upon some substance, right? Mm. What it actually is, is we're very social by nature. And when we're isolated or exiled, we tend to drift to find other ways to belong. And often that will be through substance, right? Okay. So if the op opposite of addiction is actually connection, then it requires love and compassion and acceptance to, to uh, yeah. reinitiate people into society, right? So there's this weird barrier where uh, these two forces are colliding. And it creates this really powerful thing that's demonstrated in the scene. And the reason I bring it up is because one of the panelists, there was uh, about a 20 minute panel after I spoke. And one of the panelists, or two of the panelists, I should say, was a mother and son. Wow. So like they played that scene and she basically just spoke about like how that scene was her life for some point in time. And then he was able to speak about it from the addict standpoint where like, you know, he was that desperate and he would do anything. He broke into the house to rob them. And, you know, her, her side of it was like, I would have given him anything but he chose to rob me, Wow! right? And, uh, you know, he spent many days in jail and incarcerated and stuff like that. And eventually just like decided he wanted a better life. And that's where these uh, reintegra reintegration processes took place. Like that's where her actual love and compassion and everything else was able to fit in. But prior to that, she just had to be tough. That's fucking hard, man. Well, it seems like, you know, while you're saying all that, I'm trying to think, like maybe how many people we play with on a daily basis that yeah. have a gambling addiction. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, cause think about how, man. think about how well poker facilitates that. If what I'm proposing is true, 
right? right. If you feel or uh, if, if you feel isolated from the world, if you feel ostracized, if you feel like you've been exiled from social community and you don't have a sense of belonging, what better way than to get some thrills winning and losing pots among eight people who are sharing the experience with you? Yeah. So it's just like sitting around a circle and passing a needle. It's 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 a social lubricant right, in right. some capacity. Yeah, I remember I used to like a lot of some of the guys I used to coach maybe long, maybe a couple of years ago. I always used to ask them like, you know, why do you play this game? Like, what is your aspiration? And then like a couple of them were like super honest with me, and they were like, I play because I don't have any friends. Yeah. You know, like I like I, I go there and now I have friends. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I was I never really understood that, but now I'm beginning to like understand that there is some sort of i guess like that builds like a uh here's the thing man Ad addiction is such an unfair terminology right because we we only labeled addiction whenever there's a negative correlation right but the fact of the matter unless is, you're somehow like a workaholic that's right. now looked at as good yeah. Yeah, yeah but the fact is if we if we zoom out a little bit we'll recognize that this happens in everyday life all the time go to a go to a pickup game at 24-hour fitness at certain hours of the day, you'll see the same crew day in and day out. Right. They form a camaraderie. They just become gym buddies. Right. And they may never speak outside of the gym, but four or five days a week, they hoop for a couple hours right. and they get that sense of belonging. It makes perfect sense that that's your tribe. That's who we are at our core. We're tribalistic in nature. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the issue with social media as a whole. And I don't want to get into this topic because we could spend a whole podcast on it. But when you're stripping away the interpersonal relationship, the face-to-face, -face, the uh, acknowledgement of one another, and you're adding a layer of impersonal nature to mm -hmm. it, you lose all of the acceptance and tribalism and uh, upside of finding a collection of like-minded people. So people that are big into social media, and I guess we already opened the topic, so it's too late now. Like when they find people that are like-minded on the social media platform, now it becomes this like mob mentality. Right. Well, it's a mob because you don't have to look the other side in the face. Right. You have no compassion. You strip away the empathetic level, the sympathetic level, the, the, the emotional level, really all that's left is anger. Mm -hmm. And that was the big running theme that I found today in speaking to this group and hearing others speak is the knee jerk reaction to anger. Anger is the simplest form of emotion. Right? right. When it's all said and done, it's the one that requires the least amount of effort. It's the most reactionary in nature. And it's generally the most irrational right. of, of, of all of our emotions. Right. It requires the lowest level of EQ. It requires the least amount of effort. And, you know, most of the framework of the talks that were taking place today, we're figuring out ways to strip away the anger and get to real emotion and real rational thinking that could solve bigger problems. And, you know, that lacks in these social media constructs. It just fuels the fire that is anger that mm -hmm. resides in people because sometimes it feels good to just go off on somebody. I have to, it's my job to keep this podcast moving. It's hard, man. It's <laughs> fucking hard. Like, what do you want me to do? Sometimes there's like, you know, there's some big points yeah. that are being said and the silence after the point is the point. I don't know what that means. Like you have to give it respect by the silence. Yeah, like, you know yeah. you don't you just like, breathe a little. Yeah, you don't just you let people sit with it. A Speaking little of bit. breathing, you know who can't breathe right now? Who can't breathe? Hunt. Yeah, he's our British friend. 
from across the pond towards the right, not the left. There's two fucking ponds, man. People always talk about across the pond. It's I only think the, the pond is only the Atlantic. Well, that's fucked up. I mean, there are too many ponds otherwise. No, that's, that's fucked up. <laughs> it's like, yeah, what's up, man? Nobody likes Japan. All right, so he can't breathe because he's been busting tournaments and shit. And I mean, the only thing he busted. What else he busted? His driver's test. He failed his driver's test? Three times. This guy's, in, this guy's out of his mind. I mean, he never drove illegally. Whoa. What? You're judging? Yeah. Have you ever even taken the driver's test? Nah. <laughs> I've, I've never taken the driver's test, but that's fine. doesn't mean I didn't drive. You go to DR, you can drive anything What you makes you such an authority? <laughs> because I've driven. There's, there's video proof that I've he's driven. Dri- he's driven. He, he's had a, a whatchamacallit, a, a permit for like a year. That's a problem. You, you have permit too long. <laughs> <laughs> no, he failed for like really silly reasons. Like uh, the first time he failed was the exact same reason I failed my test the first time. He... He made a left-hand turn from uh, like a right. non-turning lane. Mm. Just a, a silly, silly thing. You know, you're just not paying attention. So you're on the right lane making a left-hand turn? No, no, no. Like, uh, you know, there are those like merge lanes often that we utilize oh, yeah, as turning yeah. lanes. Yeah. Uh, that just didn't exist. And so I think he was just like trying to make a left-hand turn from like the middle of the the, the left lane. This guy's dangerous as fuck, man. <laughs> I'll keep him off the road. I don't know what's going on. Listen, if he wants instruction on how to drive, watch the vlog that I drove the Maserati mm-hmm. and I was all over Vegas. We went to we went to Bunny Ranch. No. We went You went to Bonnie Springs. <laughs> we went to Bunny Ranch. I, I sped, I was doing 50, mm-hmm. but then I was doing 75, doing a turn, yelling like, yo, what up? Did, and then we did, almost yeah. Yeah, then you get pulled over in a parking lot. I, I am dying to see what Hunt's reaction would be if lights came on and he was in the car behind the wheel. There's a part of me that thinks that he'd just be like super alpha about it. Just be like, no, fuck this, man. I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong. Here's all my paperwork. Yeah. Like, like mad formal it's about really it. Like, yeah, really British and proper about yeah. it. Like, hello, officer. What may I do for you? Yeah, like pull the window all the way down. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, that's crazy, man. I mean... Anyway, shout out to my man Hunt. He's out there in the grind. I think I think he has some chips in the Colossus. So. Yeah, man. He bagged almost 400. 400? Mm-hmm. So I'm supposed to wrap this podcast at a certain time limit now because our production crew doesn't like when we extend things too long. Mm. So this article came out about a sauna. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a wrap. Solve for Y vlogcast number five. And it is ghost.